Hey. It must be going to be summer because everybody came to first service. So glad you guys are here. Because Lexi doesn't, if she's the only person listening to my sermons, it's never quite as inspiring for me. So, um, let's pray before we start. Father, um, normally I'm preaching right from a passage, and I feel like I have your authority by just trying to re-speak your written word, and when I'm sharing vision, that's so much more relative and subjective to my understanding of your calling and leading for us as a church, and how we've meted that out as elders and leaders and so on. And um, so I pray right now that you would help me to share well um, and to preach compellingly and scripturally about these things. And I pray also that you would help um, all who listen be able to listen with discerning hearts. And that which um, you would speak as the vision for this local church, I pray that it would hit with weight and they would feel a weightiness to it. And that which isn't, you'd let it pass by them very easily. Um, even if it's when I'm yelling the loudest. Uh, I pray that you would impart that. Pour out your Holy Spirit, Father, now, and give us discernment and ability to think through and, and talk about where you want to take us as a church. We're here in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, last, last week, I, um, I talked about that I'm really cynical about pastors' vision talks. Because one is that um, Because I assume that people who listen to them Are cynical about them And thinking, oh great, another sermon That's about, probably going to be about money or something And building something um, But even more than that I'm cynical about them From, I think God Because I, I think God is cynical about them And one of the reasons for that is I shared this verse From last week where it says in Ephesians 3 20, 21, Where it says, now to him That's God, who is able to do Immeasurably more than all we ask Or imagine According to his power that as at work Within us, to him be glory In the church and in Jesus Christ Jesus throughout all generations Forever and ever, amen And so when I think about God doing more than I can ask or imagine, I think that by definition probably means whatever vision I'm going to share with you is wrong on some level. Um, you know, but one of the things that I am comforted by is when we look at this verse, one of the things that's very clear is that when it talks about God doing more than we could ask or imagine, he speaks about it specifically in relationship to the church. Right? Um, last week I shared... Um, this passage from Matthew 16 Where Jesus is talking with his disciples And Jesus asks Who do you say I am? Like what's my real identity? And Simon Peter answered You are the Christ The son of the living God And Jesus replied Blessed are you Simon son of Jonah For this was not revealed to you by man But by my father in heaven And I tell you that you are Peter And on this rock I will build my church And the gates of hell will not stand against it Will not overcome it And it refers to my church That is Jesus is saying The church is unstoppable Right? And when you put that together with the last verse, that could be fairly compelling. But one of the things that I know you're thinking, a lot of you, um, are, Nick, um, I don't know if you've actually been to a church recently, but there's hardly anything on earth that looks more stoppable than the local church, honestly. I mean, gosh, I've, I mean, I've been to several and had experiences with the people that, you know, are part of them, and I can't hardly think of anything more stoppable on the whole face of the earth, I mean, other than maybe the L.A. Clippers, that are more stoppable, that's more stoppable than the church. 
right? And I should have said Chicago Cubs, right? Uh, <laughs> different season. Anyway, um, but here, here's a couple observations on that. Here's my first one. Jesus looked stoppable. Right? I mean, the people who murdered him would not have presumed to try to kill him if he didn't look stoppable. I mean, hardly anybody looked as stoppable as Jesus. In fact, they thought they had actually accomplished the stopping of Jesus. But because of the power of God, he was shown to be unstoppable. And Scripture teaches again and again that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, i.e. the power of God, is the power that is at work in us. And therefore, in his church, right? The other thing is, you could say, yeah, well, Nick, that's Jesus. Yeah, well— a few verses before Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 are these verses. Because do you know what comes right before that passage I read you? A whole passage of 18 verses about the church. Um, like when we, when we read the verses that God can do more than you and I can ask or imagine, do you really think he's talking about your personal ambitions? Our income? Our health? That kind of stuff? Because that's not really what he's talking about. He— it says what he's talking about in the verses preceding it. And this is sort of the climax of those verses. His, that's God's, his intent was that now, in this era, through the church, the manifold, or you could translate that many-faceted, like a gem, wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him, meaning Jesus our Lord, and through him, faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence, right? So another wonderful promise from God, right? In him and through faith in him, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. Great. What is that really in reference to? Your personal ambitions? Your personal feelings? The encouragement that you want? Well, that is true, but that's not the context of the verse. The verse is because God, because of his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus for the purpose of revealing his Glorious, many-sided wisdom to all intelligent beings, not just earthly, but spiritual, who you probably don't care about. He decided through his intent that now, through the church, that would be made known. And because of all that, you can know darn well that you can come through Christ to him with freedom and confidence because he's darn well going to do this. Do you see the logic of the passage? That is, it's saying— the church is as unstoppable as Jesus. Um, so the, the question then becomes, okay, if the church is that, how do we become, how do we become that? How do we become this group of people that somehow reveal the many-faceted or the manifold wisdom of God to all people, to all everything? How does that work? Um, and I think it works this way. That we'll be the kind of church Jesus has called us to be And the kind of church Madison needs us to be When we do two things When we make sure that we're gospel-driven and gospel-centered And we're driven toward the city in which we live Right? Now, some people kind of struggle with that language Gospel-centered, I mean, that's kind of churchy language, right? It is And some people are like, well, why not say Like God-centered or Christ-centered? Why say gospel-centered? Well, here's why Gospel-centered isn't better The gospel isn't more valuable than God or Christ it's just more specific, right? So when we say, particularly in the city, well, we're a God-centered church. Well, what on earth does that mean? I mean, that means, well, which God? And what do you mean? And well, right? And we say, well, we're, we're Christ-centered. Well, which historical Jesus are you referring to, right? 
The one who agrees with my political party and so on? Oh, 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 no. The one that agrees with the gospel that's in the Bible, the good news that Christ died as a substitution for our sins to bring us to God, to free us from sin, to remake us in his image, to reconcile and redeem the whole world through this new organism he calls the church that he empowers by his spirit and through which he reveals the many-faceted wisdom of God. That message related to the Christ of that message, which is the revelation and demonstration of God. You see? It's not better, it's just clearer, more specific, right? But then that has to get pointed towards the city. The fancy Christian word for that is contextualization, right? To put something in its proper context. And one of the things we need to realize is is that that gospel-centeredness has to be pointed at the city that we live in, right? Or specifically the part of the city that we're doing ministry is mainly the west side, right? And um, people who live in this general area there's a, there are a lot of differences between them, and they're not all the same. But there are some real significant similarities. And if we want people to hear the gospel, we've got to speak in a way that they can hear it, right? We've got to use language that they understand, which means you've got to learn to, to describe what you believe about God in almost entirely secular language. Because if you drop soup, you know, infralapsarian on somebody, or sanctification, or justified, whatever, or if you talk about the blood of Jesus even— you're going to actually creep people out. Even though you totally believe in that, right? We totally believe in the saving power of the blood of Jesus. But blood of Jesus is a metaphor for Christ's death, right? But if you talk about Christ's death, that's not as creepy as referring to the blood of Jesus. The reason we say blood of Jesus is because it's connected with the Levitical metaphor of the sacrificial system. If you don't backload all that, you just talk to a modern Madisonian and be like, I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're going to think you're like wigged out nuts, right? So you've got to contextualize, right? You've got to answer the questions they're actually asking, right? They may not be asking the question you want to answer. You might have to answer a couple of questions they're actually asking with the gospel before they're interested in the gospel asking them any questions, right? You've got to show how the gospel fulfills the story they already want to fulfill. You've got to you got to demonstrate its relevance. I mean, that's part—so we've got to be gospel-centered, and we've got to connect it to the city that we live in, Right? Sorry. Hey, could you move that forward for me? For some reason, it's not going. Um, So if we recognize that, um, here's what I want to talk about this morning. Is if that's what we want to be, we want to reveal as a people together the multifaceted wisdom of God to the people we come in contact with, to the city in which we live. And we want to do this as a real, actual local church together. And we want to do it more than we were doing it before over the next year. Where are we going? What are we going to actually—because it's one thing to talk about the theology of that. It's another thing to say, hey, let's do this together. And all of us actually participate in that. Okay? So every vision has to have a plan, right? Every plan is going to have obstacles. And to get past those obstacles, you're going to have to have solutions. So here's what I want to do. I want to go over four obstacles, the four solutions, and then I want to make nine challenges. Sound fun? Okay, now— you might be like, really, nine challenges? Nick, did you learn anything in school about public speaking? Yes, I did, but I've also learned some things about secular, uh, secular and cynical modern people. If I come up here and I give you only one application for this, give more money or volunteer more or something like that, and, say, and I say, why don't you pray and ask God what he wants you to do? How are you going to feel? Inspired? No, you're going to feel manipulated, right? 
Because if you really love Jesus and you go home and you pray, what, God, what do you want me to do with my money? Like, emotionally, what's the most likely thing's going to happen? You're going to feel guilty like you should give more, right? It's just going to make you—and then you'll be like that jerk, right? You're not going to feel inspired by that. You're going to feel like I'm manipulating you. Like, I want to sit in my office on a big pile of money, and maybe I can buy one of those Rolls Royces that those other pastors have, right? So, so here's my tactic. I give you nine things. You go home and you sort out with God which of those things you're going to attack this year. And I'm going to attack all nine. But you can figure it out so that— so you can't accuse me of, like, locking you into one thing that doesn't apply to you. Does that make sense? All right. It will take a little longer, though. So let's look at the four obstacles. Let's see if this works again. Oh, it does, but you helped me too. Okay. So the first obstacle is, I believe as a church, we're categorically under-investing in the younger generations. That is the younger cohorts. We are, I think. Um, most churches, when they have about 200 people, have a full-time youth pastor. That's one of the first things most churches hire. But we shrank to our staff and then are growing back out again. Um, but the bottom line is, we have full-time person for children. You have a full-time person preaching at you. We've got, we've, we've got a full-time person doing communications. So we all know what's going on. And so I know what's going on. But what we don't have is somebody who wakes up in the morning and goes to bed at night, and when they think about Jesus, they think mainly about how do I connect Jesus with these younger people? And the ages I have in mind are about 12 to 28. That cohort of people. Somebody who their passion is focused on that group. Now, I'm just going to leave it there because I'm going to get the solution later. But right now, we are underinvesting in those people. And I'm sorry that the solution to that is hiring somebody. I'm sorry that's the case. I think it is a case, and I'll say why in a little bit. Second is evangelistic growth. Um, do you know why I came to High Point, why I really wanted to come here? I mean, besides the fact that High Point was the only church in America that wanted to hire me. Right? I mean, that aside, one of the reasons I was excited to come to High Point Church is that we were this big church that was almost entirely empty. Like, I loved that and still love that about High Point Church. I mean, think about the providence of God, okay? So you might not know the history of High Point Church, but High Point Church was a big church, one of the biggest evangelical churches in Madison. And then there was some unhealthiness that kind of crept into the leadership of it, and a lot of the healthy Christians decided to go somewhere else. And so they went mostly to spiritually healthy churches and strengthened them. And those churches did more ministry in Madison, and High Point Church shrank, was humbled, broken down, squished by God, right? But in God's grace and in his providence, he allowed this church to continue rather than just wiping it off the face of the earth, which he could have very well done. But he allowed it allowed just to get down to the very bottom where it just looked like it was going to die, and then it just sort of didn't. Right? And now, right, and then, and then he called Pastor Lurch to come here, and he spent two years just doing healing, and now the church started to, it started to grow back again, and we had this big, empty church, and it's awesome. Right? Now, um, my first Sunday, there were 325 people here. The average over the last month before apparently the Sunday we went, went into summer numbers, right, was about 500 people, which is cool, right? That's, let me do the math. That's, I was a social studies major. 175, right? So, uh, so 175 more people in three years. Most medium-sized churches would be pretty happy with that, right? Right? But is that what God has called us to do? What's the real question we need to ask? How much life change has happened? And how many people have come to Jesus? Right? Um, now, I will say this. On the first one of those in terms of life change, I'm actually pretty excited about that. 
I mean, just, I, I just, I, betw- I met a lady before the first service who was like, you know, one of the ushers invited me here, and I just, I'm a caregiver. I'm just, like, I'm just tired. I'm so emotionally depleted, and I came in here, and people have loved me. It's been, this is my second week. I'm so excited. I'm going to join this Bible study. And I was like, awesome. I met a woman in the hallway between services. She's single mom, five children, um, came into the office this week, did, you know, wits end, and Lisa's like, come to church. Just come to church, and your kids will love children. You can come in. We'll, and there were, there were five High Point people. Like, one of them latched onto each kid, carrying them through the hallway. And they were getting snacks that get connected. And I was so proud to be a pastor here. And I, and, and when people, I was, during the announcements, I was reading a letter from somebody who was at this church for three years. And now they're moving on in their graduate studies. And he wrote a letter because he said, I write letters to, to people in places that have impacted me immensely in my own spiritual growth. And I got to read what he had to say about how much he had grown in the three years that he was here. In terms of life change, I actually think High Point is doing decently well. But in terms of people coming to Jesus for the first time and really contextualizing in the sense of the gospel penetrating into the lives of secular people who don't go to church, guys, I, can, I don't even have to take off my shoes to count the number of people that I know have come to Jesus in the last three years. That bothers me. You can only change what you can't accept. It's got to bother you, right? What bothers you? There are a lot of people who would say, oh, you should just be carefree and whatever and live in the little, nothing should bother. No, there are things that should bother. Now, there's nothing that bothers you. You bother me. You know what I'm saying? Like, things should bother you, and that ought to bother us, right? Um, The third is what I'll call sticky transformational community. You know, it's really cool that in three years, 175 or something more people have sort of found a place. Um, It's probably more than that because now everybody comes every week. But but you know what? There's actually—we are on a thoroughfare. We are this big monstrosity of a church. There have actually—sometimes we we average 12 or 15 people who are new a week. And all those people are coming here looking for something, and hundreds of them have not stayed— and every—and listen, it's one thing to talk about numbers, but every one of those numbers represents a person who walked through those doors, and they were looking for something when they came in. And for not—for a lot of them, it wasn't necessarily Jesus. It wasn't like, I'm here looking for Jesus. Well, awesome. Um, let's pray or something. They, I mean, a lot of them came in for different reasons. They were looking for relationships. They were looking for acceptance. They were looking for somebody who would simply talk to them. They were new from out of town and they wanted to connect somewhere. There there may be lots of different reasons why people came, but whatever they were looking for, they didn't find it. And I think there are—we can't—and we can't be responsible for everything everybody's looking for, but I think we can be responsible for two things. If people come here, they should be offered a connection with God through faith in Christ, and they should be offered with a connection with other human beings that will talk to them, love them, listen to them, and care about them. Those two connections— I don't think we can make any excuses for. We should offer those. And my fear is that the second of those, there are people coming here and not finding. And that bothers me. And I think to the extent to which you would know about it, it would bother you. The last one is this, and this is not um, the most popular of the four, as I've shared these in other groups, but it's just what I've called the suburban anti-transformational effect. That is, every environment that any of us live in have some things about that environment that form us systematically away from Christ and towards the world. Um, And one of the things that sociologists tell us is that um, the system that you live in is much more foundational for how you're formed as a person than what people say content-wise. Because when content comes in, you can be like, no, I don't believe that. You can hear it coming and you'd be like, nope. 
But when a system forms you, when it's structures that form you, you get convinced of stuff and you don't even really realize it's happening. And the suburbs, suburban Madison life, is a structure that forms us in certain ways that are anti-transformational, Christianly speaking. Okay? Think about it this way. Um, why do gangs thrive in ghettos? Why does that happen? Are young, poor black kids dumber than everybody else? Of course not, right? Why do they thrive in, in ghettos? Right? Because that context, that structure has, creates a particular sense of need, that is, security and provision. Those kids don't feel secure and they don't feel provided for. What do gangs offer? Security and provision, right? They know that, that if you get involved in gangs, you're likely to get addicted to drugs, go to jail, get killed. They know all that. But they're in a structure in which there are two very basic human needs that they're longing to find security provision they can't find, but they find it there, as well as affirmation, and you add a whole bunch of other things. Why? Because they find transformational community there. We'll just change environments. We've got the same problem. They're just different problems. They're a, li they're, they're a little bit quieter problems. But there's at least three that we can talk about. One is um, the comfort, right? Comfort's great, isn't it? Comfort is one of my personal idols. Like when we did the Tim Keller series, I was like, affirmation? No, I don't need affirmation. I, got I was like, I don't have any idols. I got down to comfort. I was like, ouch. Like I'm probably going to leave here and drive straight to Goodwill because I saw a chair in their garbage heap that I think I have to have because it's that comfortable. Right? But what does comfort do? Comfort is great, but how does it affect us? It lulls discipline, doesn't it? It's not necessary. We're comfortable. When you, I mean, you're not, when you're laying in your recliner, you're not doing sit-ups, right? Comfort lulls discipline. And if you read the Bible, is discipline important? Yes! It's really important. But we're in a context in which we're comfortable, and therefore discipline is lulled. We walk around undisciplined. What happens? All of our spiritual—all the spiritual dangers have their way because we don't have physical ones, right? And then safety is another one, right? Isn't it great to jack up housing prices so that no riffraff can come in and we can have really safe neighborhoods? That's great, right? Well, on one level it is. It's, it's nice that people don't break into my house for the most part, right? It's nice that I feel safe in my neighborhood. That's wonderful. But what does it also do? It removes me from dealing with risk on a regular basis. And it causes me to not want to give up my safety. And is risk part of living out the gospel? You better believe it. Risk of rejection, risk of safety, risk of future financial well-being because you give now. Risk of investing in your job because you actually have boundaries because you do ministry in your life. Risk, risk, risk. Everything's risk. Right? Same thing with vigilance. If you never get attacked, are you looking out for attacks? No! We, we live this bubble wrap life in which our kids will walk out into the parking lot because their speed bumps so high, they will rip out the entire undercarriage of your car because we have created an environment in which nobody has to be aware of anything. Right? But in the Bible, is a profound spiritual awareness really important because of spiritual and otherwise attacks that will affect our spiritual transformation in a dramatically negative way? Yes! Absolutely! It's a huge theme of the Bible. And think about our opportunities, right? One of the reasons we don't have any time to do ministry and one of the reasons there's no money to sacrifice is because we have so many opportunities to take up all our time and all our money and all our attention. 
And if there's, if it's not just us, and, and when we have kids, then it's the kids, right? I was at a soccer game yesterday, and they were like, you need to be careful, you know, pacing your energy to the soccer game, because you guys have three today, and one kid goes, well, I don't have three soccer games because I have a baseball game. And I'm just like, awesome. Hope your knees hold up. I mean, I, like, it's, it's sometimes it's shocking to me how many opportunities that we have and how many opportunities we take such that our lives are totally full. Right? Any given Sunday, there's maybe 20 families that aren't at church because their kid has some game somewhere. That no stakes are based on. Them playing it has no dictation on their future life. And we've become confused to think that what our kids need from us more is slightly greater quad definition and balance in relationship to soccer rather than the inculcation of the gospel. I mean, that's an issue. Right? And what opportunity does is because it takes up all of our attention one way, it lulls sacrifice out of us. And so I believe that the suburbs will create, if we are not, if we are Christians and of the suburbs, we're of the suburbs that we go to church, what kind of church will we go to? We will go to a church that we will not suffer it to require from us discipline, vigilance, risk, or sacrifice. Because the church will have to fit our suburban lives. And if it steps out of line and messes with our comfort or our safety or our opportunities, and if it requires any of those four things from us, we will find another church. And think of how worldly and God-dishonoring and joyless and transformationless we will be and our lives will be. Does that make sense? That's a problem. We've got to figure that out. We have to figure out how to be in the suburbs, but not of the suburbs. We have to figure out how to love the suburbs, love the city. You, I mean, I don't know. I love Madison. I think it's fabulous. I mean, I would go downtown and eat fudge and walk around the Capitol and grow things in the two months that it's warm. And like, I mean, I, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff to like here, right? But the system will kill your heart just like any system has the potential to do, unless you specifically focus your vigilance, your discipline, your risk, and your sacrifice specifically against the worldliness that creeps in the context you're in. And we got to figure that out. Okay, so here are four solutions, okay? Oh, I'm actually kind of ahead of schedule. That's good. Even though I ranted on that for a little bit. Okay, so here's how I want to get past obstacle one. And that is we need to overinvest rather than underinvest in the younger cohorts. Now, um, what the, the solution to this is simply to go full-time with our youth pastor gig. Not so youth pastor, the youth pastor can do all the ministry, but so that they can organize and recruit people and get all of us into that ministry. Okay? Um, now, I have heard rumors that some people in the more mature generations um, heard that in different meetings. They were like, well, that kind of makes me feel like I'm not that important. Okay, well, this is Christianity. You're not that important, but let me say a little bit about that. Um, the way I look at the church, there are—there's the emerging generation, and then there's the sort of like middle generation, and then there's the mature generations. Now, within the mature generations, for me, that's empty nesters and older, okay? Which is basically like you made that kid run and you survived it, or like you've, you've gone through that much experience or whatever, but you're kind of like, you know, it's like in my mind, it's like 58-ish and older, okay? Th which is not old. It's just you're in the mature generation. Now, within the mature generation, there is maturity— and then at a, certain, at a certain part of it, you get to the point where added into that is an elderliness, which includes a progressive frailty, okay? Now, if the complaint is, 
Nick, what you're saying is you want to invest in these younger cohorts, 12 to 28, but you want to ignore the elderly, increasingly frail people of the church, then that is a perfectly valid objection. If we ignore the elderly and more frail people in order to focus our energy and resources on this young cohort, um, that's a problem. Now, we can't afford to not do this for that. We got to do both. But if that's—but if the argument is that the mature generation is like, well, we think we should have a full-time pastor, forget you. That is never going to happen, okay? Because you're supposed to be mature. I mean, you're supposed to be—you're not supposed to—I mean, you're supposed to come and advise me, right? I mean, there are older saints in this church. They come and tell me stuff all the time. I take them seriously. Not because they have more religious knowledge than me. I got the master's degree, but they've got experience. You know, you keep talking to your kid like that and, you know, or I mean, they'll come and be like, listen, think about this or what about that? And I've seen you doing this. What about and then, All the time. That's great. That's how it's supposed to work. That gener- and that generation ought to be, listen, the mature folks ought to be pleading with the elders and with me to get somebody in place to increase this group of people so that these people can have maximum impact within an intergenerational church on that cohort. Because listen, you got two options, Okay. High Point Church, if this is High Point Church 2.0, there's going to be a High Point Church 3.0. There's going to be something next, the way we do church. Because this is just as cultural as anything else, and there's going to be a new cultural integration that this next— and where do you think that's going to come from? Like that little rant bow? It's going to come from the student ministries, right? It's almost certainly going to come from the younger people, right? Now, there's a couple different ways we can relate. Now, we're going to hate it, okay? So let's just stipulate— the young people are going to come up with something new. We're going to hate it, okay? Now, the question is, in what way are we going to hate it? Okay, we got two options. We can either actually disciple them so that they will understand the gospel and they will understand the scriptures and they will understand the fights of our lifetime and the ones previous to it. They will un- and they'll, they'll understand some of that. And then, living in the cultural moment they're in, they will take that discipling knowledge and they will rework it in terms of contextualization to try to reach the generation in which they're going to be that middle generation for. When they move out of the emerging generation into the sort of in-charge generation. And if that happens, we will hate what they do, but, it will, but we'll be okay with it. It's kind of like whenever your, your kid gets a job, whatever, you're like, that's not really what I was thinking, but okay. Right? Like, it, it works. Like, it'll be—we won't like it stylistically, but we will be happy with the content in the formational direction. We'll be like, okay, I—that's loud, but—or, um, gosh, that's weird, but— But it's Jesus, and it's not just Jesus shallow. It's not just like, oh, we're worldly and let's add Jesus. No, it's like, we'll see a certain amount of like integrated Christian discipleship in it. It'll be biblical, but it'll just won't be us, right? And then there's, here's option two. Both of them, we hate what they do. But in this option, we didn't disciple them. And so what they do is also stupid, okay? Like, it's young. And it's stupid. Like, if there's no—the gospel isn't at the center. They don't understand the providence of God. They don't understand the dynamics of salvation. It's just totally worldly. They put Jesus on it, sort of, and they do it. And in either case, we get to decide, we who are not in that generation, whether or not we're going to fight it or we're going to fund it, to use Andy Stanley's phrase. And this one we can fund. And this one, we'll just have a church split and everybody will hate each other, and that'll just be that. And we'll close the doors in I don't know how long. And so, we've got to make this first one happen. And here's my promise to you. We will overinvest in the younger generation if I'm the pastor of this church, okay? That's just—you can fire me, though. That can happen at any congregational meeting, okay? But here's my promise to you. 
Every time I'm with 20-something, you just ask them. You just get with these, and you ask them if I've said this to them. This is what I tell them. You are not a grown-up, really, until you can walk through High Point Church and have these four conversations. Six-year-old, what's that? Is that Play-Doh? Is that Play-Doh into your nose? Cool. What did you learn at Children's Day? Really? That Jesus loves you? Again? Awesome. Yeah. All right, we'll see you later. And then you get up, and then there's a 22-year-old, and they have the 22-year-old conversation. And then they walk over here, and there's a 48-year-old with kids, you know, their oldest kid is 13. And they have a meaningful conversation with that person, right? Partly because they know that person. And then they come over here, and there's this lady in her 70s, and you talk with her on the way out to the car, because you just know once you get out there and it's semi-wintertime, you're going to want to take her arm so she doesn't crash and burn. You know, and, but, but you're talking about her, she's talking about her kids, and you're talking about school, and blah, 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 and, you're not a grown-up until you just move between the, the generations. Part of being a grown-up is being an intergenerational human being. And I will keep saying that. And you know what I, most of the 20-somethings do when I tell them that? They go, yeah. Either, yeah, you're right, or yeah, I gotta work on that, or yeah, that makes sense, or— And as long as that remains the vision and focus, the mature generations will have nothing but to gain from over-investing in the younger cohorts. For both of those two reasons. One, they'll have a greater impact, and two, um, we won't hate what they come up with as bad. Second, in relationship to evangelistic growth. Um, hold on, I'm lost. Um, we, we just need to heat things up evangelistically. It's great to feel like, um, you know, I'll share Jesus, but— um, you know, there's a time and a place for that, and I just don't want to be pushy and all that kind of stuff. And I, listen, I totally understand that. I understand that. To a certain extent, I understand that you, you have to be tactful, and I don't want us to be known as, you know, the church with all the annoying Christians, right? Like, that's not the goal we're after. But at the same time, it's very easy for contextualization or being culturally whatever sensitive to be an excuse for having no boldness and no differentiation. I remember when my brother was graduating from undergrad, there were about 50 or 60 people in his physics department at SUNY Geneseo, and I asked him one time, I said, I said, Stan, so look, of all those people, my, Stan, my brother's kind of like an, a geeky introvert, okay? He's not like a college football player evangelist dude, okay? And I asked him one time, I said, so Stan, how many people have you actually shared the gospel with in a meaningful way of those 50 people? And he's like, well, well, all of them. And I was like, seriously? Like, all of them? He's like, yeah, I mean, I can't think of anybody I, I haven't shared the gospel with. And I was like, how do you do that? Like, I have such a hard time getting in spiritual conversations. And he's like, he's like, you know, Nick, I, Jesus is my king. I'm a Christian. I mean, how long can you hang out with me before that comes up? Right? I thought, yeah, okay, okay. Like, I mean, there's a sense in which, yes, cultural sensitivity will delay sometimes getting right there to talk about Jesus. But if, if Jesus is Lord, King, and Savior, and he's really shaping the whole of your personality and who you are in relationship to him, and he's remaking you in the image of God, and that really, really matters to you on a really deep level, there, it, it, at some point, right, something's going to give. And one of the things, and I think that we've just got to turn the heat up on that a little bit. Um, I also think that we have to do some more stuff in-house to make it better, because some people aren't good at sharing the gospel, but they're good at inviting, and we've got to make sure that we have a maximally useful place for them to invite people to who don't know Jesus. And namely, that's going to be the Sunday morning service. We've got to do some stuff in here to make it as friendly and understandable to folks like that as possible. And so here's my first goal. I, I want us to try to get to the point where 
like 25% of the new people at High Point are coming to Jesus because they either like are long away or they're coming to Jesus for the first time. I think, because otherwise that's got to bother us, right? I mean, do you think it's God's will for us to fill a church with Christians from other churches? I don't. I don't think that. Okay. Um, third is transformational sticky community. It's one thing to have fun small groups. It's another thing to have small groups in which there's real life change happening. And it's much more important to have both of those happening at the same time. And um, one of the things that I want you to do is I want you to hold your small group leaders accountable for doing the five small group purposes. Okay, so the five small group purposes are all up on our Engage and Equip website, which is at that address, hbcmadison.com. There's five blogs, one on each of the, of the five things. And they're, fa- they're fairly simple, right? It's community, spiritual growth, prayer, missionary support, and service, right? And all those are designed to make sure that community is sticky, that is, people want to come, and they're experiencing real Christian community, and it's transformational. They're coming for a reason, and something's actually happening. And when that's the case, um, I think the groups of people coming to High Point who aren't finding what they're looking for, that will diminish because there will be a, a place that's relationally sticky, that once they get there, it'll be like, honey, they won't want to leave. And yet, it will accomplish the thing that they should be looking for, as well as the thing they probably are looking for. Because they'll find both personal community and Jesus. Does that make sense? And then the last obstacle, um, suburban anti-transformational. There's no silver bullet for this one, but here's, here's what I need to tell you about that. Is that spiritual leadership in this kind of context to figure out how to be a church that's in the suburbs but not of the suburbs, it takes time. Um, I, I have— um, I have found the work that I've been doing at High Point enormously emotionally depleting for the last year or so at least. And, um, you know, between the church and the two schools, um, organizationally I have to run about $3.7 million worth of organization. Plus I preach all but 12 Sundays a year. I'm supposed to make 10 um, departments better. Um, And I've got four kids under 10, one that's six months old. Right? And in a church with 500 people in attendance, it means like there's 800 different adults actually coming week in and week out. And that's not including any kids or any needs they have. Plus there's walk-ins and evangelistic relationships and so on. It's just, that's not doable. And you don't want, you don't want spiritual leadership from somebody who's spending most of his day answering 80 emails. You don't want that. You, you should, you should have this attitude about me. What do we pay him for? Like, I should look lazy to you. You should like look, be like, what does he do? It's like every time he's just reading, every time I see him, and, or, or like sitting like with a far off look in his eye. Exactly. I mean, that's, a, that's really, I mean, what, because I should be praying, reading, thinking, deliberating, clarifying. That's what I'm, that's what my position's supposed to do. I'm supposed to teach. I'm supposed to envision. I'm supposed to encourage. I'm supposed to do that kind of ministry. And I can't. I can't. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, why Lloyd is coming on, is that executive associate pastor. So a lot of the stuff organizationally that I can't do, that he's really good at and has a passion for, he can do. And I can withdraw a little bit to some of these things, recharge, because listen, if you're emotionally depleted, it's hard to do anything else well. Um, and I want to lead this from a place of strength. And if we're going to figure out, if we're really going to figure out how to live transformationally in these suburbs, we've got to figure that out. And I have to live that out. And that's going to be tough. And I think that we're going to do it, but I have to do it. If I live a rat race, you will suffer for it. 
And I want to make sure that the, the where we're moving, we're moving away from that. Does that make sense? Okay, nine quick challenges. How are we doing? Oh man, we're like 10 minutes ahead of last time. Okay. So the, the first question, so take out this little thing if you would. You should, it should be in your bulletin. Bust this out. My intention is for you to have this for a year. Okay, that's my intention. I know a lot of you will leave it in your pew, but um, I create it with this intention. So the first question is, am I, in, am I in it out of emotion, conviction, or not at all, right? So the first question is, do you even want to be part of a church that really legitimately wants to reflect the glory of God through a gospel-centered, city-driven way in which people can find Christ and be trans— I mean, do you even want that? Are you in? Right? And so the answer may be, circle, just no, not at all. I'm not in. And that's okay. That's one of the options. Okay? But if you say you're in, my question is, really? In what way? In what way? Are you in—okay, do you know what this is? That's adrenaline. Right? Are you, are you this in, or are you this in? Are you in like an emotional rush? Are you in right this second, but a week from now, you won't actually be able to be counted on to show up for the volunteer thing that you volunteered for in the children's ministry? Right? Like, in what way are you in? Really? Because this is actually worse than not being in at all. Because you're self-deceived. And people will count on you that can't count on you. And if we're going to actually accomplish something, we're going to have to be kind of tough. Right? We're going to have to be able to count on each other. We're going to have to be able to trust each other. We're going to have to be working for the same goal together. And what, this is what we need. What John Piper calls cardiac Christianity. It's not, a, it's not an emotional zoom. It's a beating heart. It has some discipline to it. So which are you? The second is, what two people are you praying for? Take this home and pray to God and ask him to bring to mind two people who don't know and follow Jesus that you can pray for that he will bring to Jesus. And then ask him to show you how he's going to use you in the lives of these two people and maybe some others to invite them, to talk to them, to love them, to share with them, to help them, to whatever, so that you can be part of God. Listen, Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe? If you do, there are a lot of people, you're going to have to believe the gospel for them at this point. Until they come to the place where they can believe it for themselves. Right? The third one is, um, what environment or structure can you serve God in? Okay? Um, you You might not have money. You may not even have that much time. But you have gifts. God is doing something with us together. And if you ask yourself or your spouse or God or people in your small group or whatever, you know, where do you think I can make a contribution? You can make a contribution. And I think that if you care about this goal, then you will, right? And one of the places to find opportunities is on the hub. It's a great place to get connected. And if you haven't, just send us an email and we'll get you, we'll get you put in right away. The third is, or the fourth is to revisit generosity. Listen, I, like, at the, look, I have to challenge you about this, all right? I don't like talking about—I like preaching about money, but I don't actually like specifically telling you to give more. But this is the point where I do that after three years, okay? So if you're new, this is the first time in three years, basically, I've done this. Except for year in gifts, but whatever. Um, and that is, 
revisit or visit for the first time, what does sacrificial generosity for this goal look like for me? That's all. Alexa and I do it about twice a year. Once for year-end gift, and then usually when we set our budget for the year, if we change anything. We, we, we don't look in our wallet when we give. We look at our budget for the year. And we say, given our income for the year and our budget for the year, what can we do and what do we want to do? Right? And for us, it's changed over the years. It's not a set amount. It's not like some percentage for us. I mean, we, we started giving 10% of our income like before we had jobs. So we've never had that money to spend. So for us, when we revisit this, it's what in addition to that we're going to give. And I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying that's, we pray, we stand before Jesus, and we figure out what we want to do that we can give joyfully and be part of. For you, it might just be the difference between giving out of your wallet versus giving out of your budget. And just keying in on that and saying, okay, I'm going to give out of my budget. It's going to look a lot like giving out of my wallet this year. But like, you just got to revisit that and be honest with God about it. Because if you're not giving financially generously, that's okay. But God is not through with your spiritual development yet. Because God creates generous people when he does his work of redemption in them. And one of the reasons why it matters for this budget cycle is because one of the things that we're doing in this budget cycle is we're hiring two full-time people, which is very abnormal. We're taking a jump. And that's why the budget increases is as much as it is. It's going to be $60,000 this year, which— when I met, I met with Dave Florin, who's like a marketing, he's president of a marketing group in town. He's like, Nick, you shouldn't even have to give a vision talk for this. I mean, this is 3% or something. Uh, yeah, but I don't think that we should give for the budget number. Like, I don't even look at that number in the, in the bulletin, like how we doing budget-wise. I feel like it's my job to keep the budget low and you to give to God, and then we should have like way more that's in the budget. Because I should work to keep the church fiscally responsible, and we should all give generously towards God. Because listen, if we have too much money— there are people without the Bible all over the world, people without the gospel all over the world, people starving. There's no shortage of God honoring awesome things to give money to. I'm just not presuming to spend a bunch of it in addition to what we need by creating a bloated budget, right? What we're going to do um, array-wise is, is if—because I've said a number of times, I don't want High Point to be a staff-dominated church. I want us to have staff that organizes things well, but it's the people of the church that are supposed to do the ministry. So the people who do it full-time are supposed to be equippers. They're supposed to help other people do ministry. So the minimal array to have a leader in each major area is that you have these different equipping ministries, and then you have these age-based areas. Right now, this is what we look like. We've got me doing the teaching leading thing. John is doing music and art. We have a full-time children's person, half-time students, and nobody doing either of these two things. Those technically fall under me right now, and I don't do that because I can't, right? We're hiring Lloyd. He's starting June 5th. We're in a youth pastor search. We're down to about two candidates. I think we know which one we're going to do, and we're pretty excited about it. Okay, so this will go to full-time. This person will be in place, and this person will do part of this job too. Right? The reason I have this dotted out is because I can imagine a future in which I would like to hire one more full-time ministry person for High Point Church to focus us all in service outside of the church. And I think that person would also work with missions, too. It would be the service person. And then we would have, I think, the array we need to equip everybody as well as possible. So I don't believe this is a move towards a staff-dominated church. I think it's a move towards a church that can be more possessed and lived out by the people of the church, but better led and equipped to do that work. Does that make sense? Okay. And then the last couple are this. Oh, that was for a different illustration I'm not going to get to. Um, Number five through seven, 
have to do with the evangelism one, and it has to do with um, making people our business. Right now, it's hard for us to do that, and I want you to think about what it would look like to make people, like real people, your business. Like, what would it look like um, to make sure that in any given week or something that you're including and encountering or hosting somebody? Like, inclu- like, what do you already do that you could just include somebody in? How, because here's the issue. We're suburbanites, right? We take advantage of every opportunity. So what are we? Overbooked and busy. So can we do ministry? Of course not. Unless we could do more ministry without doing more things. Well, how would we do that? Well, very simple. We would change our attitude about the things we did and include people in what we're already doing. So, you know, from the look of some of you, you eat dinner every night, right? Right? I mean, look at me. Right? Like, we, like, why do you eat by yourself? Right? Um, and one of the things I think to recognize with this is if all we have to do sometimes is just include people that are already there in things we're already doing. Okay? So let me—I'm going to actually show you a video. I skipped this last service. Let me show you a video of one story of somebody doing that. Okay? So can you show the Greg one? Hi, my name is Greg, and I uh, moved into the Madison area about just over two years ago for a job. And I've been going to High Point um, pretty much ever since. A year into the job, an old high school friend actually moved to Madison and started at the same company. We caught up and we met with some other friends from high school and um, started getting dinner together. We went out to eat at the Great Dane, and it was fun. So we did it again the next week. And it was fun again. So we um, started inviting more folks out just to eat, just because we liked to eat and we liked food and we liked each other too. There was a Thursday night dinner club that started forming. And because there was such an eclectic group of people there, we started to just make sure people got to know each other by like get to know you questions like what's your favorite color or what's your favorite animal or like what's your most humbling moment or what's your proudest moment. And um, through that, we got to see people um, and get to know them in a way that was just beyond what you get to know them at work. And that's when God started giving me vision um, for that group, that it could be a place where um, non-believers could interact with um, Christian fellowship and see what that's like. It was kind of exciting because folks, they, they, did, they did experience that fellowship. They did see um, something different in this eclectic group of people that they didn't find elsewhere, and they were excited about it. So after about eight or nine months of that, um, one of the girls in the group who had never read the Bible before, had never uh, worshipped a higher power. Uh, She just started having more questions about what she's doing here and um, more eternal uh, mindset questions. From some of the relationships in the group um, at the dinner club and some of the relationships at work, um, they really pointed her to the Bible. And eventually she um, just explicitly wanted to know more about Jesus and who he was and, and, what he, and what he's about. It was really exciting to see her make an explicit commitment to Christ and to um, want to follow him, acknowledging how hard it's going to be, but getting plugged into a church at High Point and small groups and everything like that. That had come from an extremely, it felt like, flourishing ministry in college. And then coming to a place where the community wasn't so apparent around me, I didn't see a lot of this stuff happening, and being in a work setting too where we were told not to talk about stuff like this and not to encourage um, spiritual growth explicitly in the work setting, to kind of see someone go that way was just like, oh, God still changes lives. He's still moving and he's still alive and he still wants to use us. I think one of the things I've really taken away from the being in the workplace in the United States and just this last interaction is 
it's it's not it the ground takes a lot of tilling <laughs> it's it's not as fertile as a college campus and you're just in a different environment where you don't form those relationships as quickly um, but like nine ten months of getting to know this group and seeing one person change um, it was definitely worth it, but it, it's, it's a long haul kind of thing where it takes a lot of planting and a lot of sowing and a lot of watering. And um, God does give the increase, though. Eight or nine months, did you hear that? But, I mean, is that too long? Right? Um, another thing you can, number six, um, how do you include people in the pattern and rhythm of your life, right? So Greg created this, this thing, like he included people in something. But some of the stuff is, don't do something new. Include people in the pattern that you're doing already. So for example, on Tuesday nights, we have intern night, which is like more than half not interns, right? It's mostly people in their 20s. And one of the things I, I tell people, like we had this one girl who kind of invited herself. She's like, I heard intern night is fun. Can I come? And I was like, yeah. Um, but here's what I told her. I said, listen, um, when my kids stop loving internet, internet is over. So when you come, listen to them and talk with them as part of the night. Include them. Otherwise, because, because our fear, Lexi's and my fear was, you know, it's just another night when people are there and it's not family time and they're, you know, blah, blah. And part of that was our conception of family time. Our conception of family time is when the, our, we are together and no one else is present. Right? But an intern night, like, and we'll be like, I'll, one of the things I ask is, are there any intern questions for the week that we can talk about? And so, so an intern will bring up a question, and my five-year-old will be like, well, I think what Jesus would say about that is this. And I'm just like, okay, that's my job, but good job. So, but my, and look, my kids will interact, and they'll ask questions, and they'll say, hey, can we play this game, and stuff, and they're just part of it. And I, we asked our kids the other night, we are like, listen, do you guys like intern night, or do you hate intern night? Or, and they're like, no, we love intern night. They don't have a sense of like, not spending time alone with daddy at all. For that, I mean, they would like to spend more time with daddy, but they wouldn't trade internet for it. Right? And, you know, this is, that's, this is actually something Lexi and I, particularly Lexi, has been growing in in the last year. Like, just how do we just live our life and just include people in it and enjoy each other and share Christ and disciple in the pattern of life we've already got? And that's what we're going to have to do. Because most of us are pretty busy already, right? And then lastly, there's two things at the bottom. I talked about this some last week. It's diversion and discipline. What diversion exists in your life that's, t- that's sucking things out that you need to face? And if you don't know what that's about, you weren't here last week, you can listen to that sermon online. And then lastly, what discipline do you need to embrace? Right? Oh, sorry. So what, what diversion do you need to fight and then what discipline do you need to embrace? Right? So for me, I hate this. For me, it's going to be fasting. I hate to say it out loud because now you'll keep me accountable to it. But that's my least favorite spiritual discipline. I pretty much hate it. Um, but it's the one I don't do, mostly. And I need to, I need to do it. And um, so that's, my, that's my, my number nine. So I'm hoping you're going to take this home. I'm hoping you're going to you're going to go through it. I'm hoping you're going to pray through it. I, I don't think everybody's going to do all nine of them. I don't suspect you are. But I hope you'll keep this. I hope you'll pray through it. And I hope you'll pick at least a couple of these and, and ask God to help you go after them. And I think that if all of us do something, uh, I think that we're going to see God do something through us 
that we would not, have, we would not see otherwise. I think that God, will res- God always responds to faith. And if we're not willing to just accept normal, I think he's glad for us not to accept normal and to do really cool stuff through this church. And listen, guys, God is already doing really cool stuff. I could stand up here for like another hour and tell you stories of God changing lives. It's not that it's not happening. It's that I would have us all go out to our car, put up our arms and say, Lord, more of that. More of your grace and reconciliation and help in the lives of people. Please let us be part of that. More. Not more for me. More for them. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, um, we want so much to to just not do— we don't want to do normal. We don't want to, but we don't want to do fanatic noses ground into the dust out of self-righteousness either. We want, to, we want to be and live the truth about Christ. We want to love and figure out how to do that. We want to be part of your mission. We want to see people redeemed and reconciled. We want, to, we want people to see you through what you are now accomplishing, through your intention in the church, through Christ to reveal your great beauty and your great wisdom and your great truth to all persons and beings in the universe. And we pray that this local church would be some, a church that reveals that rather than conceals that. Help us have the identity and lead us into that, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with us as we sing our last?